afternoon is from Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20. This is what Holy Scripture says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be. Good afternoon. It's good to be with you today. I want to start off by uh, talking about the Hibernia oil platform. I don't know if you know about this oil platform. It's an enormous fixed structure anchored to the ocean floor in the North Atlantic. The platform does not move, acting like an artificial island. The Hibernia was built as a stationary platform because it sits right in the middle of what is called by scientists Iceberg Alley. Uh, The icebergs that travel these waters can be as large as ocean liners, There are 16 concrete uh, teeth that surround the Hibernia and distribute the force, if an iceberg were to strike the structure, distributes the force throughout the entire structure, even into the ocean floor. This oil platform was built to withstand a 1 million ton iceberg, which potentially comes around every 500 years. And designers claim it could actually withstand a 6 million ton iceberg, which comes around every 10,000 years. And even with all these protection measures, Hibernia's operators take no chances, never allowing an iceberg to even come close to the platform. Radio operators pilot or plot and monitor all icebergs within 27 miles. Any that come close are lassoed and towed away by powerful supply ships. And the smaller icebergs are simply diverted using high-pressure water cannons. Now what's clear is that the designers and operators of this massive oil platform take the threat of icebergs very seriously And they take every precaution and implement rigorous protective measures. 
With that in mind, I want you to consider Paul's words to us in this passage in Ephesians. Because I believe Paul is encouraging every Christian in this room to respond similarly when it comes to your spiritual life. Paul believed that we live and exist in dangerous waters. And there are very real threats actively seeking your destruction. There's a spiritual war taking place behind the scenes. And this is even considered, unfortunately, a controversial issue within Christian circles today. Surveys show that Christians are comfortable believing in God, but less likely to believe in the devil. They believe in evil, but not a personal supernatural being seeking to destroy the church and God's people. The German scholar Hans Hübner says this when commenting on Ephesians 6, a belief in the devil has lost its plausibility. Whoever today still feels threatened by the devil or believes in his fangs is probably himself in the fangs of a fanatical sect. Do with that what you will. <laughs> Belief in the devil or in spirits has never lost its plausibility outside of Western circles, the modern Western mindset. But in the West, we wrongfully, I think, assume that science has utterly disproven the existence of spirits, whether good or bad. Some atheists Scientists will argue this point, while others will honestly admit that science is incapable of making such a judgment on whether the spiritual realities exist or not. Science deals with the material world. But Paul is addressing a realm that science can't even attempt to touch. And so a good argument can be made that it isn't irrational and it isn't unscientific to believe in the spiritual realities that Paul is talking about here. In fact, it's essential to a Christian worldview and to understand that reality, we have to see that it involves, our world involves both a material and an immaterial realm. Here Paul says in verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Here Paul is saying, look, the issue is not the physical re threats and realities of the world, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now to this, uh, this afternoon, I'm just really going to uh, target these first few verses, verses 10 to 12, is really all we're going to talk about today. And in, in the weeks ahead, we'll cover the rest of verses 10 to 20. But uh, some Christians want to downplay this talk, this kind of talk that Paul issues here in verse 12, where he talks about all of these threats, these authorities, these rulers, these cosmic powers. And some Christians today will argue, well, what Paul is, is addressing, he's addressing uh, 
the evil institutions of our society. He's addressing the unjust systems of authority in our society, in the world. That's what Paul's talking about. But the New Testament scholar Clinton Arnold argues that Paul is making it clear that the real enemy for the first century church was not the Roman Empire or any local civic rulers. That's not who Paul is talking about here. That is clear. Rulers and the authorities, as Paul puts it, was his way of of talking about demonic spirits. And Paul doesn't want the church to fall into the trap of underestimating the threat. Arnold warns us about the dangers of minimizing the reality of, of evil supernatural beings with these words. He says this, To do so makes us more vulnerable to their attacks by causing us to be less vigilant, less reliant on prayer, less dependent on God, and less dependent on spiritually gifted fellow believers. And he uses the analogy, he says, you know, if you're a homeowner and you somehow found out that a burglar was planning to break into your house on a specific night, You would lock and bolt the doors. You would shut and secure the windows. You would have a security system in place, activated, and you would call the police for help. But if the homeowner did not believe in burglars, he would wake up in the morning with all of his valuables missing. And Paul could not give us a clearer warning here about the threat we face from the devil in his cohorts. And so I ask you, do you believe you're at risk? Are you living your life as if there's a real threat? Paul begins with this exhortation in verse 10. Look at what he says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Please notice, Paul's exhorting you To be strong. But when someone encourages us to be strong, our natural tendency is to look within and to draw on our own internal fortitude and strength. But commentators notice here that Paul's exhortation, be strong, should be interpreted in what's called the passive voice. Stressing the idea of receiving strength from an outside source. Paul uses the same type of appeal with his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1 where he says this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So if we're not careful, we might believe that Paul wants us to look within and motivate ourselves by repeating this type of mantra, I'm going to be strong. I am going to be strong. I can do it. I know I can. But that is not what Paul is exhorting us to. The starting point for Paul, the beginning is to recognize that when you enter into spiritual warfare, you need to see I'm not strong. 
I need God's strength. It's, and, it, and the other thing we need to see in what Paul's saying here, that this is not just a one-time strengthening that Paul's encouraging us to, but a lifetime of growing dependence on the Lord. He tells us the strength of His might, the strength of God's might, not your might. And that's a day by day, by day, dependence and reliance. So if you don't feel strong, and if you know you're susceptible, you're right where you should be. You're at a better place than the Christian who is arrogantly confident in his own strength. So here's the important principle that I want you to understand as we enter into this discussion about spiritual warfare. And it's a principle for all of our spiritual life. It applies in lots of areas. But the more capable we feel as human beings, the less likely we are to admit our need for a Savior. Do you see that? The theological way to put this is that if one's anthropology, your view of humanity, rises, then your Christology will fall. If you think more highly of yourself, then your need for Christ will lower. Christ will only become an example. Christ will only become maybe a coach. You will no longer see that you need a Savior, not a friend. You need a Redeemer. You've heard it said that God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible, friends. Did you know that? In fact, I believe it's a lie from the devil. I really do. I think it's a lie from Satan. Jesus consistently seemed to go to those who could not help themselves. He went to the blame. He went to the sick. He even went to the dead. That's who Jesus came for. And think about it. If it were true that God helps those who help themselves, then you wouldn't begin by turning to God and finding strength in Him, which is exactly what Paul wants you to do. No, you would focus on your hard work, on your discipline, on your strong belief. That's where you would put your energy and your trust, and that's exactly what the devil wants you to do. He doesn't want you to be dependent on God. He doesn't want you to find your strength in Him. For Him, that's the worst thing you can do. But here, we're called to be strengthened in the Lord through our daily relationship with Him. It's a relational strength. It's not, it's not like we got bit by a radioactive spider and we get some power within us, independent of relationship with God. It's not that He infuses us with something that we can then go out and be strong. It's a daily relational connection with Him. That's the kind of strength Paul's talking about here. And not only is it a strength that you should have with Christ, but it's a strength you need to have with one another. Individualized and privatized faith, I believe, is the greatest threat 
the church has ever faced. And we live in a day and age when it's at its highest. This week I read a story about a police officer in a northern native settlement in Canada. One day a rabid wolf wandered into this aboriginal settlement. Now the officer eventually shot this wolf. But not before it attacked a young man and his grandmother in their home. He had used a chair to try to fend the wolf off. Now, this village had about 150 sled dogs in the village, which together would have been more than enough to scare off this wolf, especially this sick wolf. But the wolf was left alone because these dogs were all tied to wooden stakes to prevent them from fighting with each other. They were all isolated. And because of this, the wolf walked right into the village, walked freely among the dogs, killing some, injuring others. In isolation, the dogs were no match for the foe, and they suffered for it terribly. And the same is true for you and for me. Alone and isolated, we present ourselves as easy targets, as easy prey for the devil's schemes. But God strengthens us through connection, through relationship. That's why we emphasize things like community group and lunches and other opportunities for us to know each other and grow in our relationship. Participating in the church is vital for your spiritual health and protection. That's where we get our strength in God. Now Paul goes on in verse 11. Look what he says. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Put on here the whole armor of God. Now we'll talk about the armor of God in the weeks to come. David will we'll begin next week in sharing more about that. But essentially... What Paul's talking about is growing in a deeper and more intimate relationship with God. That's what he's talking about. That's what it means to put on the armor of God. Now, put on was a common word used for putting on clothing. It's also used in other places for putting on armor. Paul frequently uses it for uh, putting on the essential Christian virtues associated with our new identity in Christ. If you look in Colossians chapter 3, Paul puts it this way. He says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Kind of reminds you of his listing of the fruits of the Spirit. And then if you recall earlier on in Ephesians, we covered this Several months ago, in chapter 4, Paul says, Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So that new self really is the same idea and concept that Paul's talking about here in putting on the armor of God. Deeper, more intimate relationship where we begin to become like Jesus. That's what it looks like to put on the armor of God. 
You become more like Christ. You grow in your relationship with Him. You grow in your sanctification. Now, why do we need this armor? Why is this so important for Paul? Well, I want to suggest two reasons that he tells us here in this verse. First, to be able to stand. It's the first reason we need this armor. To be able to stand. Now, we assume, I think, most of us when we read this... We assume Paul's talking about having a defensive posture. Uh, When you think of armor, you tend to think defensive, the defensive benefits. You know, it protects you from somebody striking you and attacking you. And when you think of standing, you think of being rooted and just standing still. But standing should not be understood here simply in the sense of standing still. I would prefer and I would ask you and I would argue that you see it as standing up against the kingdom of darkness, which is defensive, yes, but most certainly offensive as well. In Psalm 21, it talks in there of uh, the wicked schemes of David's enemies, King David's enemies. And it's described there that they're not able to stand or carry out their hostile plan against David. So not being able to stand in that sense means David's enemies were not able to carry out what they wanted to do. They weren't successful. And so it's clear here that standing is not only this defensive posture, but to be able to stand might better be understood as Being successful in your mission. Being successful in what God has called you to do. And in Ephesians, believers are summoned to take both a defensive and offensive posture against their supernatural enemies, against the kingdom of darkness, in our attempts to follow Christ, in our attempts to be light in a dark world. That's how I want you to view this. That's how Paul wants us to view this. It's important to state this because for many Christians, their defense against the devil's attack is so often to stay in their foxhole, right? Or to stay on the sideline. And you think, that's, the, that's my plan. That's how I'm going to stay safe. And I'm not going to get into the fight. And that is not what Paul calls us to. He says, no. That's why he uses this language in verse 12 of wrestling. That's an active, active image there. Wrestling against these forces. You are actively attacking as well as defending. So that's the first reason why we need this armor. The second reason that we need the armor of God It's because we're under attack. It's that simple. We're under attack, whether we realize it or not. In verse 11, notice what Paul says. He talks about the schemes of the devil. Now, schemes here, we should understand that word. It refers to the methods, the tools, the tactics that the devil uses. Now, do you know his tactics? Do you know his schemes? Do you know how he operates? 
Now, in the U.S., mountain lions are the animal regarded as the number one human predator. The author and naturalist Craig Childs was doing research on mountain lions in the Arizona wilderness. And as he approached this waterhole, he was approaching from downwind, and he spotted a mountain lion drinking the water. Now, the lion didn't notice his presence. And so after it finished drinking, it slowly walked into a cluster of junipers. And after a minute, Childs walked to the waterhole. He identified uh, tracks in the mud, and he was recording some notes. And just before he bent down to look a little closer, he, he scanned the perimeter. And there among the shadows of the junipers, 30 feet away, he saw a pair of eyes. And he saw this mountain lion. Now, he expected the mountain lion to run away, but it walked right into the sunlight toward him. Childs pulled his knife out, and he stared right into the eyes of that mountain lion because he knew what he must do, and more importantly, he knew what he must not do. And if you know anything about mountain lions... What's the one thing you must not do? Run. Mountain lions are known for taking down animals six, seven, eight times their size. And the way that they do it is they attack from behind. They clamp onto the spine, the base of the prey's skull, and snap the spine. So Childs held firm to his ground. He didn't even intimate that he would back off. If he ran, he knew it was certain he'd have a mountain lion all over him. Now that mountain lion did everything he could to get him to run. He kind of came to the left to try to get behind him. Childs just followed him. Then he went to the right to try to get behind him. Childs followed him, kept his eyes right on him. That lion got to within 10 feet of this man. But he said, my stare was the only defense I had. And so Childs maintained that defense as the mountain lion continued to try to provoke him to run, to scare him, back and forth, back and forth. Now finally, the standoff ended. The mountain lion turned and walked away. And the reason was... Childs knew his enemy. He understood how he operated. And that's what Paul wants you to see. Do you know your enemy? Do you understand how he operates? The word devil here, diabolos, means slanderer. And that name alone gives us insight to how he operates and how he does his work. And the schemes that he uses, a slanderer damages another person's reputation. It plants seeds of doubt. Jesus called the devil the father of lies in John 8. And it's clear that lies and deception and accusations are part of the toolkit that the devil uses in attacking us. Richard Lovelace, in his book, 
Renewal's way of life put it this way, that Satan's influence over us is analogous to that of the fisherman who has a fish on the line and who is able to urge and direct the fish voluntarily uh, movements so that it goes where he wants. And that's exactly what the devil does. He uses what's already in us, our weaknesses, our failures, our brokenness, and he just uses those things against us. He doesn't add anything to that, that isn't already there. He's just very adept at using it against us, using our own leverage, so to speak, against us. He knows our weaknesses, our tendency, and plays off those. And when you think about the accusations and lies that the devil uses against us, I want you to think in terms of three areas that the devil lies to us and the devil accuses us. First is in our understanding of God. Now, we go back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. The very beginning, we see how the devil uses this scheme. What does he do with Adam and Eve but cause them to doubt and mistrust God? He plants an accusation, a lie in their hearts and minds to get them to think God does, is not to be trusted. And he uses that same lie in your heart and your mind today. The ways that God lies to us, or the ways the devil lies to us about God, so often have to do with God's love for us. He either overemphasizes God's love at the expense of God's holiness, or he overemphasizes God's holiness at the expense of God's love. So what that means is we either fluctuate between believing God loves us, so it really doesn't matter how I live, I can do whatever I want, it won't matter, God's love, God loves me. Or we can so emphasize God's holiness that we think God doesn't love me, there's no way he can, he's so holy, all I can expect is his judgment, in his condemnation. And the devil is skilled at playing off those two ideas and concepts in the heart of the follower of Jesus Christ. So that you become putty in his hand so often. And your own understanding of who God is and how God views you. You lose sight of the gospel. Now, that obviously relates to your understanding. The second important point I want to make here in the devil's schemes is how God or how the devil tempts us to view ourselves. How the devil tempts us to view ourselves. Thomas Brooks was a Puritan. He writes about Satan's schemes and the ways that he tempts us. And he says and argues that one of the things that the devil does is he causes us to spend more time looking at our sin than at our Savior. And that you can get lost and overwhelmed looking at your sin at the expense of seeing Christ and his love for you. 
He says, for every one look at your sin, you must take five looks at your Savior. Oh, if we only practice that, what kind of a difference would it make in how we view ourselves? Because you would see God's love for you. You would see what Christ has done for you. You wouldn't be overwhelmed by your failures. You wouldn't be condemned. You would live in the freeness of the gospel. And Satan would not be able to accuse you. Because if he tried, you could simply point to Christ and say, no, 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 devil. I will not stand condemned. Because I stand in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for me and was raised to life and he has set me free from the law. And so I will no longer live under that curse. And so the gospel protects us from that accusation. It protects us from the lie that the devil throws at us. But I want to add this third area that the devil uses lies and accusations, and that's in our view of others. I think, well, I'll share this story. Uh, Olivia and I, years ago, did um, a, a discipleship program called Sonship, and it was a mentorship uh, program, a discipleship program, and we, we did these lessons in learning about our adoption into the family of God and God's love for us, understanding that. And we met with a phone mentor, and one of the things he harped on all the time, which I didn't quite get so much at the time, I think I understand even more so today, often he would tell us, point blank, he said, do you realize the devil is out to destroy your marriage? Do you realize he plants lies in your mind and your heart that impact the way you view your spouse? Do you realize the threat and the result of that? And are you on guard seeking God's protection from that? It's the one area I think so many of us, us as married couples, if you're married here, that we underestimate and that we don't do and why praying for each other is so vital and important. Because the evil one can cause you to view your spouse as the enemy, can plant those seeds and accusations. You begin to interpret their actions and their words in malicious ways. And it's the devil planting those seeds in your heart. In causing you to view your spouse in this way. I firmly believe that. I know that's true. I've seen it in my own life. Not only in the way I view Olivia at times, but in the ways I view people that I work with, the staff, or some of you in the room, or friends, or neighbors. Uh, it, it's so easy to fall into that trap. Now, I'll end with this. How do you know if the devil, devil is making inroads to your heart? I, I would say, here are a few signs. They aren't for sure, you know, 100% for sure that this is true. But I believe they're, they're good signs and warnings that the devil might be making inroads into your heart. And it's this. I think the primary one is, are you moving towards isolation? Are you feeling more alone? 
Do you feel like no one understands you? Do you feel no one is for you? Do you believe and are you withdrawing from relationship? If that is true, I would argue you're under spiritual attack. And the devil is gaining ground in your heart. I would also argue quite possibly, this isn't always the case, but quite possibly if you're overwhelmed with anger, anxiety, fear, quite possibly the evil one is at work. I would also say if you're very prideful, stubborn, arrogant, unwilling to repent, it might be a sign that the evil one is at work in your hearts. And I'll end with this one. Are you comfortable? Are you comfortable? If you're comfortable, friends, it's likely the devil is making inroads into your heart because a follower of Jesus Christ should be anything but comfortable. I love this quote by Donald Gray Barnhouse. He poses this question, he says, what, if the, what would it look like if Satan really took control of a city? This was over a half century ago, and this Presbyterian minister, he offered this scenario. He speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, for example, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. In other words, we would all be comfortable. We would all be moral. We would all be good people without a need for a Savior. And so if you are passive, if you're comfortable in your Christian life, if you're not in the battle, if you're sitting on the sidelines, wake up. Get in the game. Hear Christ calling you. See the work of the devil in your life. As Leon Morris puts it, the scholar who passed years ago, you can drift into sin, but not into righteousness. Take this warning. Hold it close to your heart. And follow Jesus into the battle. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we take this moment and this time to confess our pride, our arrogance. We do not believe we need you so often. We do not see the threat. We are blind to it. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, open us up. Open our eyes to see our need for you. Make the threat clear. And empower us, Holy Spirit, to enter into the battle as we seek to follow you, Lord Jesus, in being light in this dark world. Protect us from the lies and accusations of the evil one. Hold us close, Lord Jesus, to your heart. 
hold fast to us and never let go. Amen.